bless the Lord. Second Kings chapter 6 and starting to read at verse 8. It says, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place where the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Miraculously, by the power of the Lord, the prophet Elisha warned the king of Israel about the plans of the enemy's king. And in verse 11, it says, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which one of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and encompassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them into Samaria. And it came to pass that when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, When he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Amen. So a great piece of scripture, great passage of scripture, reminding us of the power of the Lord and how he knows all things. But for the sake of a title this morning that will hopefully become uh, a little bit more understandable as we go along, I want to preach today about I see men as trees. I see men as trees. Bless the Lord. I'm glad for sight. Amen. Uh, I'm glad to be able to see. I, I can't imagine what it's like. I don't know a lot of people that are severely visually impaired. I know a couple. And I'm glad for the privilege of sight. I'm glad to live in a nation where many problems that we have with natural sight is treatable. There are many places you go. Uh, I, I ministered in a youth service just on... Tuesday night when I was in East Timor and two young men there who were visually impaired, one who could almost not see and another one who I believe was completely blind. 
And we don't see a lot of that in, in this country, and we are very blessed. But eyesight, basically, without being too scientific today, because I don't have that ability, eyesight happens when rays of light reflect off different surfaces and objects and pass into our eyes and pass through the lens that is in our eyes and focus on the back of our eyeball. And that image that is focused on the back of our eyes is then communicated via our optic nerve unto our brain, and our brain then interprets that image. That's a pretty basic understanding as far as I have it. Those that are scientific can correct me afterwards because my terminology is probably not just as it should be. But that's basically how sight works. And dysfunction in the relationship between the lens in our eye and the back of our eye is what causes vision problems. Those of you like myself that wear corrective lenses, whether it's glasses or contact lenses, these man-made lenses that we wear provide assistance to the natural lens to sharpen the image and produce a clearer reflection in the back of our eyes and thus communicating with our mind. When, when we have a vision problem, whether you're short-sighted or near or far-sighted or you've got astigmatisms or whatever the problem may be, corrective lenses are designed to assist the natural focusing function. And that's how glasses work. I didn't, haven't worn glasses all my life. I've only had them since I was about 30. But I'm glad that I'm able to get them as easily as we can in this country. And they help with our vision. But you know, even when our natural vision is 20-20, if our mind does not interpret the image correctly, then the perception is flawed. If there's something wrong with how our brain interprets what we see, it may not be necessarily mechanical in the sense of light and lenses and focal points, but it's a problem in perception and in understanding. And in our text in 2 Kings, we see natural sight altered miraculously twice. Two different occurrences. The first time is when the prophet's servant is miraculously given the ability to see the spiritual realm. When he saw the chariots of fire and all of that was around about them, the, the host of heaven that was with them, other people did not see that. But temporarily, I think, at least... Through the request of the prophet, the Lord gave the servant the ability to see the heavenly host that was present for their protection and for the battle. Then at the same time, the Lord, again at the request of the man of God, gave the enemy soldiers natural blindness. He took away their ability to see, and so this, this uh, frightening army that had come down with horses and chariots were led like small children by the hand into the city of Samaria. And then when they, their eyes were opened, again, at the request of the man of God, they realized they were actually in their enemy city and basically been taken captive, surrounded by their enemy in that city. And both experiences, the spiritual sight and the interfering, if I can use that word, with natural sight, both of those experiences completely changed the perception of the battle. They completely changed how those people viewed the battle they were in. It was reversed. Because the prophet's servant, when he got up in the morning, went out to take care of whatever he was doing, 
maybe fetching water, maybe getting something ready for the day. When he saw the enemy, when he saw that vast army, his heart just sank like a stone. And he went back to his master and said, in King James English, he said, alas, what shall we do? In modern, we'd say, we're, we're, we're finished. We're, this is, we're, we're dead. We've lost. This is over. But God was able to touch this young man and cause him to see that the battle was not simply a physical battle, but there was supernatural influences on that conflict. Amen. And so that young man's understanding in just a moment of time completely changed. He went from fearful and terrified and of giving up all hope to suddenly thinking we're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. The Lord is with us. And when you see a heavenly host, the Syrian army doesn't look quite so scary anymore. Amen. And if the Syrian army had seen the heavenly host, they wouldn't have hung around too long either. But they didn't see them. But the Syrian soldiers, who no doubt came with confidence in their ability to conquer this city and to take the man of God captive, suddenly their confidence disappeared. It was a reverse. They were taken captive without even having a single firing a single arrow modern times we'd say without firing a single shot but they didn't have those kind of weapons and i want to preach to you this morning for just a little while what i feel like the lord has laid upon my heart and that is that we need a touch of god upon how we see the battle we need a touch of god on how we see the battle and how we perceive how things are going to go amen our interpretation of what we see needs to be changed. The way that our natural minds perceive the things that go on is not the way that God would have us to perceive them. Because the Bible says that the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. It doesn't say that it's difficult or that he's going to have to study and struggle. It says that the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And so when we view things in natural understanding and perception, we cannot see it the way God wants us to see it because the way that we think is not the way that He wants us to think today. Amen. And the victory, the victory began in Dothan when Elisha's servant saw the balance of power for how it really was. That's when the victory began, when his eyes were opened spiritually and he saw how vast the army of God was. At that point, again, no arrow had been fired, no sword had been drawn, but at that point, the victory began. Because, you see, the thing is, nothing had actually changed between before he saw and after he saw. The heavenly host was already there. The enemy was already there. The situation had not actually changed. What changed was the servant's perception. What changed in the battle was what he understood compared to what he saw. Amen. And we need to understand that God wants to change the way that we see to understand that the balance of power is still on our side, that the presence of God is still with us. Amen. When you and I understand that He is still greater, that He will still never leave us and that He will still never forsake us, then we're going to see the battle a whole different way. But as long as we look with this natural 2020 and think the way this brain naturally thinks, we're easily overwhelmed. We're easily overcome and we easily throw in the towel. The servant had quit before the battle began. What he saw 
caused his faith to die and give up hope. He said, Master, it's all over. Make out your will. We're going to die today. But when God changed his vision, it changed the outcome. Amen. I believe this morning that some of us are feeling a little overwhelmed. Amen. I know I've been like that recently. I'm as human as everybody else that's here. And we get to points where we just think, God, it's too much. It's too hard. It's too far. I've hung on too long. I've tried too hard. It's not going to work. We feel like we can't see a victory. We think it's never going to change, and we don't think we can make it. Anybody ever felt like that? We've got some honesty in the building. That's good. We don't have to teach an honesty. We've got that covered. But I want you to know this morning God's arm is not short. His promises are not slack. That which he said he will do, he will continue to do if we will trust him. Bless the Lord. You know, we need to be like Elisha's servant. And, and instead of saying, alas, master, we need to say, God, touch my mind. Open my eyes that I might see. Bless the Lord. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark this morning. You know why perception is so important? Because what we perceive is our reality. You convince yourself in your mind of something, that's fact as far as you're concerned. It doesn't matter how much other people might think you're crazy. It doesn't matter how much people might sit down and say, but look at this, you're not making sense. When you perceive something a particular way, that becomes your reality. That's why it's something we have to take very seriously with how we perceive things. That's why we need God to touch our minds in the way that we think. Because we want to perceive things the way he would have us to perceive things. Mark chapter 8 and verse 22 says, And he came to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, I don't know if he spat on his hands and put on his eyes or just spat right in this poor guy's face. But it says, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. Can you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. This is a passage of scripture that has baffled theologians as long as we've had the word of God. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of opinions about why it took two touches from the Lord to give this man full restoration of his eyesight. And if you're sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for a revelation this morning, I don't have one. But there, is, there, there has to be a significance somewhere. Some people say that that the Lord was building the man's faith like he was doing the miracle in stages, possibly. I certainly don't believe that the Lord's power was limited and it took him two goes to get the job done. I mean, he, he, he healed blind people and raised the dead and did miracles every day that he was alive. So I, I certainly don't think it took two installments of the power of Jesus. Some, there's a lot of different things. Some people suggest that... that because this man was blind that it was a perception problem that he was seeing things possibly for the first time I, 
I don't think it tells us that he was blind from birth, but there is some research that suggests that when people who have been blind are able to have their sight restored through surgery, that when they first begin to see, they have to sort of learn to interpret the things they see. Because previously, everything was interpreted by touch. They would feel the pulpit. They would feel a chair. They would feel a table. They would even feel the face, as it were, of people that they loved to be able to identify them by touch. And so when the, when the sense of sight is restored, and suddenly you imagine not being able to see, and then suddenly you can see everything. The ability to, to interpret what these images are, you know, to, to recognize, well, hey, that's what a car looks like. That's what a house looks like. That's, I mean, to interpret what a house looks like with touch would be nearly impossible because of its size. But it's possible that, that there was a problem. And I don't, I don't have the understanding of why the Lord took two goats to completely restore this man's sight. Maybe you do and you can help me out afterwards. But whatever it, the reason was, Whatever the reason was, the outcome was that somewhere after the first touch, there was still a problem between what he could see and how he interpreted that. Because what he saw was an inaccurate reflection of reality. He said, I see men, they're like trees walking. Now, trees don't walk. And exactly what the, the previously blind man meant is not necessarily clear to us, but his understanding of what he was seeing was not accurate. And so for, again, whatever the reason was, after the Lord touched him the second time, it completely restored not just his ability to see, but his ability to accurately understand what he was seeing. He was able to see things and to understand what they are. You see, we don't think about some of these things because none of us here are blind. We don't really stop and consider when it says Jesus healed the blind man what that means to somebody who's never seen before. Suddenly there's a whole new world. Suddenly there's sunlight. Imagine experiencing sunlight for the very first time as an adult. If you'd spent your entire life in darkness, feeling your way around, and then suddenly you see the sun. That's mind-blowing. That's really hard for us to comprehend what it was like. And Again, exactly why the Lord did this, this is on those, that list of questions to ask Jesus when you get to heaven. Lord, why this? And there's, I've heard it taught and preached a variety of ways, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but the Scripture doesn't really tell us exactly what took place here. But somewhere there was a problem between his new vision and his understanding of what he was seeing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Paul writes and tells us that there is a lack of ability or a failure to be able to see what the Lord wants people to see in those that are lost. That the, the God of this world, who we can easily identify as the devil, works very hard to blind the minds of those which do not believe. He does not want them to be able to see what Jesus wants them to see. And when we pray for people, we, ask, we often will say, Lord, reveal yourself to them. 
let the light of your gospel shine into their lives because the enemy's desire is to hinder their ability to see. Now, I don't believe that when we read that verse of Scripture that that means that, that the devil is constantly filling people's minds with satanic things. But rather, he is influencing their perception and influencing their understanding so they do not see things the way God would have them to see things. That's why the Bible talks about, again, the carnal mind is not able to understand the things of the Spirit. To the carnal man, the things of the Spirit are foolishness because they do not understand. And the devil does not want them to understand. It's not talking about a literal physical blindness, nor do I believe that he's filling their minds and turning everybody that's not a Christian into a, a devil worshiper. But he is trying the very best he can to hinder their perception to cause them not to be able to see what God wants them to see. The wise man in the book of Proverbs wrote in, in, in a similar vein, really, when he said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy parts. Why did Solomon write to us and say, Don't lean on your own understanding? Did he say, you know, just be foolish, just do stupid stuff all the time? Don't be sensible? No, no, no. He's saying we trust in the Lord to help us to understand. When we're talking about the things of the Spirit and the way God wants us to live, understanding does not come from within. It comes from here. It comes from the Word of God and from the Spirit of God. And if, if we trust in our own understanding and we use our own understanding as our platform for the way that we think, What's written in here doesn't seem to make sense. It, does, it seems irrational. It seems to be out of date and irrelevant to our daily lives. But when we trust in the Lord, when we put our trust in the Lord, when we acknowledge Him in every area of our lives, then He will direct us and He will give us clearer understanding because what the devil wants to do is to cloud the mind, to blind the mind and to hinder people's ability to see what God would have them to see. And we need to trust in the Lord. Because when, you know what happens when we trust in our own, when we lean on our own understanding? We use that word lean. We, we look for support. We lean on something. We're looking for that to support us. When I try to support myself with my own understanding, the book of Proverbs also says that there is a way that seems right unto a man. When I lean on the way that seems right unto me. What's the end of that verse say? It says, it seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That doesn't mean that men are stupid or that people are idiots. That's not what it means. It means that natural thinking and natural perception will lead us to a place where we are spiritually dead. And if we try to justify or approach our relationship with God with natural understanding, it will not succeed. You'll end up frustrated, feeling like you can't do what God wants you to do and unable to achieve the will of God because you're trying to do something spiritual via a natural process. There's a reason that if I take my car to the service station, I don't put diesel in it. It's fuel. I'm guessing it burns at some point. Don't usually play with fire and burn things as a rule. 
but my car is not made to run on diesel. I can pull up to a Bowser and the, the, the pumps look very similar. There's not a great deal of difference, but I have to choose the right product to make the car work the way the car was designed to work. And our spiritual lives are exactly the same. God has designed us to function spiritually in a particular way. But if we're pumping things in that are not what He designed to be in there, we will cause our engines to break down and to become corrupt. Bless the Lord. There is a way that seems right unto a man. Read your newspaper. See the philosophies of our society. See the decisions that governments are making and that high courts are making where they are reversing things that have been held to be morally right for decades and even centuries. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Bless the Lord. Our own understanding, doing things that's right in our own sight based upon the vision quality of natural man will not lead us to be where God wants us to be. Hallelujah. But when we can take the information and focus it clearly and perceive what God wants us to understand, we will see where He wants us to go. We will think the way that He wants us to think. You know, I was a kid, a lot of you, I guess, when you were children, somebody gave me a magnifying glass. Anybody own a magnifying glass when you're little? So this is a bit of an old, older toy, you know, but uh, us older ones. You know, when I, when I go to East Timor, one of the most common things you see kids playing with is the old tire with the stick down the street thing. Now, that's pretty out of date for most of us, but some of you folk may remember that from when you were younger. But when, I, when, when you get a magnifying glass, you know, you think that's really cool. You go around looking at words and pictures and making your mum and dad bigger and smaller. And, but then somewhere along the way, either through your own twisted thinking or from one of your friends, you find out that if you take that thing outside in the sun and angle it just right and move it up and down, you can focus those sun rays into a point and start your own private bushfire. You can set fire to a piece of paper just by focusing light in the right way. And ants and anything else that happened to be on the driveway when you ran out of paper. Don't look at me like I'm horrible. You did it as well. (laughs) But the thing is, when light is focused properly, it's powerful. When light is brought to the the point to that pinnacle, that apex, there is a power that is not there when it's out of focus. Move that magnifying glass just a little bit and you got nothing. Change the angle, you got nothing. Get that focus right and there's something that happens. There's something that's released. And it's exactly the same with the way that we think. If we will cause ourselves to surrender to the Word of God and the Spirit of God and say, not my will, but thy will. Acknowledge that His ways are higher than my ways. I can get a clarity. I can get a focus in my understanding that will release the power of God into my life. But if I'm trying to serve Him in my own flesh and my vision is blurry, all I'm getting is frustration. I'm trying to do something without knowing what to do. I'm just going to get frustrated and annoyed and I'm going to be like Elisha's servant and say, I give up. I'm finished. can't go any further. God, touch our minds. Touch the way that we think. 
Natural thinking causes people to sin. Natural thinking causes people to backslide. Natural thinking causes people to fall out with one another. Natural thinking does nothing positive spiritually. Nothing positive spiritually. It will only bring things that lead us to spiritual death. Bless the Lord. The prophet Elijah. We're not going to read any scripture. I'm just going to paraphrase it. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's the very famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah, led by the Lord, calls a showdown. Gets up there, he's one man, one old prophet. Wild-looking creature, probably got a big beard, maybe his hair was a bit long. He's in wearing a camel's hair shirt, which wasn't a big seller. And he was a wild-looking man. And the prophets of Baal, there were hundreds of them all wearing matching choir ropes, all looking perfect and harmonizing together and swaying to the same beat and doing all the good stuff. And this sunburnt old man stands up and says, this is the rules, this is how this is going to go down. He said, I'm going to build an altar and you're going to build an altar. And he said, we're going to put our sacrifice on each of it. And he said, nobody brings any fire. I don't know if he searched them for matches. I don't know if he trusted them. But he said, nobody brings their own fire. And he said, we're going to pray and we're going to see whose God is God. And so he said, you first after you. And so these hundreds of synchronized, well-presented, harmonious, all the right words, prophets begin to do their thing. They had everything going. I don't know exactly what they did and I don't really care. What I do know is that they put on a good show. But what I also know is there was no spark. There was no flame. There was a bunch of stones and a bunch of wood and a dead animal. Let's probably get more and more flies as the day went on. But finally, exhausted, they gave up. And the old, sunburnt, crazy-eyed man of God stepped up to the altar. And he said, Lord, you need to show these people. So you, he said, you know what he said to the crowd? He said, how long halt ye between two opinions? He said, how long are you going backwards and forwards? He said, make up your mind. If God is God, then serve him. And he prayed a prayer that only lasted for a verse or two in the Bible. But see, we know before that he even raised the stakes, we would say. He, he took water, he dug a trench around his altar and took barrels after barrels of water and saturated that thing so much that even the trench was full of water. He had a soggy sacrifice on soggy wood, on wet stones, surrounded by a moat. And he prayed a prayer of faith, and the Bible says that God answered with fire. He consumed the sacrifice. He consumed the wood. He consumed the stones. He consumed all the water that was in the trench. And they had themselves a worship party. They rejoiced and said, God, he is the Lord. And they took those prophets of Baal and very unpolitically correctly took them down to the river and lopped their heads off. That wouldn't be very well accepted nowadays, but that's what they did. And everything seemed fantastic. You know what happened in the next chapter? In the next chapter, that old prophet that had just had an experience that has been preached about I don't know how many times in the last 2,000 years. The very next chapter, that prophet sank to a place of depression and failure and being downcast to the point that he said, God, it's not worth trying anymore. Sat down with his head between his knees and he said, I'm the only one left. Nobody loves God anymore except me. 
and he convinced himself that it was over. And we think, what's wrong with you, Elijah? You just had one of the most amazing experiences. I mean, I'd be feeling pretty, you know, I'd call down fire from heaven. You know, I'm glad God doesn't give us the power to do that. Some of you might not have houses. But he's just had this incredible experience. And just a chapter later, he's just, what's, what's happened? You know what happened? There was a threat came from an enemy, from Jezebel. She said, I'm going to just like you killed my prophets, I'm going to lop your ugly old head off as well. And he just threw his hands in the air, became overcome and overwhelmed. And we think, Elijah, what's wrong with you, man? You know, when we're feeling overwhelmed, you might not have called fire down from heaven, but you've been in the fire of the Holy Ghost. You need to turn around and look back and say, look what God has done in my past. You've got victories. You've got miracles. You've got testimonies. You've got situations where God has stepped in again and again and again. But just like Elijah, we focus right on the moment where we are and we sit down in the molly grubs and we say, God, it's hopeless. I'm done for. And the Lord said to Elijah, you think you're on your own? I've still got 7,000 people. Now, 7,000 might not seem like a lot out of a whole nation. But if the Lord said to me this afternoon, the 7,000 people come to church next weekend, I imagine I'd get rather happy. I'll take 7,000 people. We'll get the rest later. But what happens is we get to that point where that's all we see. The only thing that filled Elijah's, Elijah's mind was the words of Jezebel. The enemy put a seed in his mind, and that's all it consumed him and snuffed out the memory of the victory that God had only just given him. God, touch our minds this morning. Open our understanding, God. Sharpen my focus. Help me to let your light shine into my mind and into my heart and into my spirit. We, we talked about this on Wednesday night, and if you weren't there, you probably should get that CD. But the Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't walk by the things that we see, the things that appear before us. Because when we base it on our appearance, then our, well, not our appearance, but the things that appear before us, then that dictates our victory. Your walk with God is based upon environmental circumstances. That's not talking about trees and rivers. That's talking about what's around you. If your walk with God is based upon your environment, then it dictates whether you have victory or not. If how I serve God is based upon what's going on, who's given me grief, who isn't giving me grief, whether I've got the bills paid, I don't have the bills paid, I'm sick, I'm healthy, then those things dictate the status of my relationship with God. But my relationship with God and your relationship with God is in the middle of that and not affected by environment. My relationship with God is based upon the fact that He loves me, that He gave His life for me, that He redeemed me, and that He brought me back. It's not based upon what's happening around me. But, unfortunately, because I'm a little slow, I very easily go, well, everything around me has gone wrong, so I must be failing. 
Everything around me is just falling to pieces and I don't have an answer for this question or a payment for this bill or a way to fix this situation up. Therefore, it's all over. And the Lord's saying, have I disappeared? Have I gone somewhere? I'm still here. Hallelujah. I'm preaching. You can all go home because this message is for me. So if you want to leave, you can because I'm preaching to myself this morning. Because we allow those things to dictate. The power doesn't come from what's around me. The power comes from what's within me. And when the servants saw the army, they were already there the whole time. Thank God Elisha wasn't feeling like his servant. It would have been all over. Thank God there are men and women in our lives that can lift us up when we get ourselves in the mully grubs like Elijah. Hallelujah. I don't want to see men as trees. I want clarity. I want the Word of God to be the same regardless of what's going on in my life. I want the promises of God to still be able to, I can trust them and stand upon them when everything else is upside down. He said He won't leave me. He said His Word is settled forever in heaven. And i got to learn to hang on to that. Hallelujah, Jesus. I want to read one more passage of Scripture. You can turn there with me. First John chapter 2. Your perception is an amazing thing. We've all heard the, the expression about whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of people, person. Now, that's not perfectly half, so don't correct me afterwards. But... But there are some people whose natural tendency is to see that as a half-empty glass and wonder where the other half is. There are other people who see, hey, that's half full. I could use half a glass of water. It's the same glass. The perception is what changes the outcome. You know, whether you're a positive person or a negative person. Now, I know that's only half full. I know it's just an I was drinking out of it, so I'm not about to have any. That's affected my perception somewhat. <clears throat> but we, people can look at the same circumstance and get two completely different outcomes. How is that possible? Is it because their eyesight's no good? No, no, no. It's got nothing to do with your eyesight. It's perception. It's how you interpret what you see. See, we see problem, God sees possibility. We see difficulty, He sees opportunity for miracle. We see heartache, he sees healing, restoration, and strength. But that's, how he, that's not how we see it. That's why we need him to touch our thinking, to bring it around to be more like his thinking. I, trust me, I'm not one of those people that believes that everything's fantastic and every day is wonderful and God's got your best life and all this, a lot of this positive stuff. Oh, I really said something I shouldn't have said then. That's a lot of baloney. There, the Bible makes it very clear, in this world you shall have tribulation. It's guaranteed. But he said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He did not say, you have no problems once you're born again, it's all just sunshine and butterflies. If he did, I missed that part of the package. Because there's some days, they're not butterflies, they're vultures. And it's raining. But he said, I will be with you every step of the way. 
I don't know where they get this fantasy about God wanting you just to have a profitable life. He's going to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. Only one of those is actually promised. That's wisdom. Health and wealth, they come and go because, you know, the Bible says time and chance happens to all men. Sun shines on the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. And you've heard me say it many times and I'll say it again. If we're supposed to believe that God wants us to have the best of everything about every situation, every day, the Apostle Paul missed that badly. I don't know what version of the Bible you have to read to make a shipwreck sound like a good thing. Your best life now as the stones come. That's crazy. That's, that's carnal thinking. That's natural thinking trying to be forced upon spiritual principles. And the two do not go together. Yes, God will bless me. Yes, He'll provide my needs. And God may do wonderful things in your life, but even when it's not easy, you've got to trust Him. Because again, that's environmental. That's what's going on around me. Bless the Lord. First John, got off track there, sorry. First John chapter 2. There's a very strong theme through the first epistle of John. Much of it has to do with our relationship with God in the way that we relate to our brethren. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Now, that's not talking about literal light, literal darkness. If you love your brother, you're in the sunshine. If you hate your brother, it's night time. That's not what it's talking about. But light and darkness do what to sight? They either help or they hinder. Light brings clarity of vision. You drive in the middle of the day, it's a lot different to driving in the middle of the night when it's pouring rain, even if you've got good headlights. A few years ago when Matthew was uh, maybe two, because Sandra wasn't even around, so he was about two years old, we went to Bunbury to visit some family of extended family of my wife's family coming home up the freeway no problems at all we got to uh, no maybe 10 or 15 minutes south of Perth we had to come to the north side where we live that old car we had at the moment decided that that was the time for the alternator to die come down the freeway and my lights just are going no lights had to nurse it all the way home half on the road half off the road driving at night with no headlights Fortunately, didn't come across any officers of the law. But the whole thing is the darkness. See, if that was the middle of the day, I wouldn't even have noticed. But in the darkness, when my lights went out, I noticed. So what the scripture says, he, verse 10, he that loveth his brother abides in the light. There is none occasion of stumbling in him, but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth. Because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, that's not literally physical. But it's talking about our ability to see. When we love our brethren, it helps us to have clarity in our spiritual sight. But when we do not, our ability to see is hindered, which means our ability to perceive is also hindered. That's why when there's offense and when people fall out with one another, they cannot see what God wants them to see because they're blinded. They can't see beyond the offense because there's a darkness. Nobody's turned the lights out. 
but there's a spiritual darkness that descends that hinders your ability to see clearly where God wants you to go and what He wants you to do. And that's one of the many reasons why we need to take this seriously. I want to walk in the... I want to see where I'm going. Verse 10 says that if we are in the light, we love our brethren, we abide in the light, there's none occasion of stump. Why is there no occasion of stump? Because we can see where we're going. You try to walk around in the dark, that might be easy when you're in your own home. But you go stay in a hotel or somebody else's house that you don't know very well and get up in the middle of the night and see how you do. Fall over somebody's suitcase, somebody's chair, somebody's cat. Whatever it might be, you're out of your, you're disorientated. During the daytime, you could find anything in that house. But when the darkness descends, I was at a youth camp. I'm coming to a close. I was at a youth camp a few years ago. I was the guest preacher. And this youth camp was in Victoria at a place called Halls Gap. And it's up in the hills and it's kind of like in a bit of a valley in the top of this mountain range. And the, the room they gave me was, was quite a nice room and, and the, the, the curtains or the blinds, whatever they were, I don't remember now, but they were really heavy. And so when it was nighttime, it was pitch black in that room. And you know what it's like when you go to sleep, sometimes you can still see light coming in from outside. And, but it was just pitch black. And so because I'd traveled in that day and I was weary, I forgot to set my alarm. I was preaching in the morning. I woke up, it was just, I was convinced it was two o'clock in the morning because it was pitch black. Rolled over and grabbed my phone and looked at the time and I think prayer was at nine till 9.30 and the service was at 10, something like that and it was like five to nine. I flew into the bathroom, had a shower and a shave, got dressed and came walking out like I've been praying since, since 6 a.m. Come into the prayer room, everybody's praying. I'm just like, praise the Lord, everybody. I know they had a heart attack. I'm supposed to be preaching and I'm asleep. But the darkness confused my perception of what time it was. I thought I still had plenty of time. But the darkness took away that ability. That's why in the book of Romans it says, knowing the time that it is now time to awake out of our sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Hallelujah. Stand with me if you would this morning. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands to the Lord today. Hallelujah.